0: So, this morning we're going to look at a a couple passages from the Gospel of Matthew. First we will continue in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, reading just uh, 31 and 32, and then the words Jesus says there about divorce He expands on in Matthew 19. So we will read the expanded version. So first from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 31, Jesus says, It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Before I read Matthew 19, I wanna give you, as you listen, this challenge. Many of you, I'm guessing, have heard this passage before. So I'm just gonna say, listen really carefully, and then as I point some things out in the sermon, see if you actually heard those when I was reading it. I'm working on this theory that we actually hear what we already know, and so there may be some things, test me on this, that I point out where you go, oh yeah, I didn't even see that when he read that. Check that out, Matthew 19. To his wife and the two will become one flesh so they're no longer two but one therefore what god has joined together let no one separate why then they asked did moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away and jesus replied moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard but it was not this way from the beginning I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciple said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. And Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Others have been made eunuchs and others have, excuse me, have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. This is the word of the Lord. So Ruthann, in dismissing the children, said they're going to have fun and do some learning. I don't know if we're going to have some fun, but we're going to do some learning. So we'll be uh, dealing with divorce We're in our series on beautiful, messy relationships or beautiful, messy families. And in the middle of this series, we're doing sort of a mini mid series on fulfilling the law. That's this three piece series uh, two weeks ago, last week, and this week that are all based on Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus talks about what it means to fulfill the law. So I started with anger and abuse. Peter last week did adultery, lust, and pornography. And uh, he was asked, so I will make sure everybody knows, I don't pick which ones he does and give him the hard ones. Um, (laughs) He actually chooses for himself which sermons in the series, if possible, he does. So just so you're clear, I'm not that mean. And uh, I get to do divorce because that's, of course, a much more fun topic to deal with. So the theme of this whole series, in my mind, is that our relationship with Jesus is actually meant to reshape all of our other relationships. If you follow Jesus, it should probably have some effect on the way you interact with other people everywhere, right? And so if people look at us as a community of Christ followers, the church, and they can't tell any difference in the way we function in our relationship with other people from the way they function with respect to other people, we have to wonder why we'd invite them to join us, because it doesn't seem to have that wanted and desired effect. It is my contention that as we honestly openly and in a vulnerable way lean into what jesus really teaches us it will inevitably and i would even say all by itself because that's how the kingdom grows reshape the way we relate with other people i live in an ongoing sense of hope that we can continue to grow more healthy in all of our relationships Context, always a context. I love to start by telling you what's happening in the story before we get to what Jesus' teaching was. Um, You may have heard me refer to Bema before. Um, I will continue to do so. They've been very helpful in this sermon as well. And um, Marty, the teacher there, teaches that whenever Jesus or any rabbi actually was teaching, if he's talking about something, he can probably point to it. Right? So when Jesus is giving all those parables about sowers and so on, he's probably by a field and he can point to it. Right? And so it's always important to understand well, where was Jesus standing, what was he doing, what was going on around him when, th- when things happened. Um, so when Jesus had finished saying these things, so he gave a whole long... Um, teaching in chapter 18. He left Galilee, which was the area where he was uh, brought up, and he went to, th- to the region of Judea, to the other side of the Jordan. It's not that far physically away. Of course, they were a walking culture, so, um, but he went across the Jordan. It's a different area. And key here, large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. So you can imagine Jesus' teaching is, is drawing people in, right? And then um, he moves, goes to another place, more people come, more people follow him, he's healing them. So imagine you're in that crowd and Jesus is healing all kinds of people. What do you expect your question or your interest would be? It would be, what do you think about divorce, right? Of course it would be. No, you'd be going, wow, this guy's healing people. What's going on? We've heard of this before in the Old Testament with Elijah. How is he connected to Elijah? You'd want to ask some sort of religious healing, God-faith kind of question, but they went here. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. I don't know, I've never actually been to an event where hundreds of people were healed. Hmm, but I wonder, if I was there, would I be the guy I wanna go? I'm gonna test this guy's theology. I'm gonna see if he really knows what he's talking about. Some Pharisees came to test him, they asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, I ask why this question, it doesn't fit the context, I've made that point, but actually this question is part of a set of about five that were the going questions right now, right? might be news to you, but in the Christian Reformed Church right now, how we deal with the LGBTQ community and homosexuality from a theological and practical point of view is one of our test questions, right? So if you want to know where someone stands, you might ask them, how do you see that? This divorce question was, in Jesus' time, one of about five things that they were asking. And the reason they were asking this question and the other ones was because there was two main teachers, two main schools, right, two main denominations, if you will, Hillel School and Shammai School, Right? And they had different answers on these questions. And so the real question is, Jesus, who do you side with? And sometimes Jesus would side with Hillel. In this case, I think he sides a little bit more with Shammai. Right? And often what Jesus would do, being Jesus, is he would side with one of them and then add something to that that made everybody go, oh, there's more to this than I really thought. Right? And I'm hoping that what we can get to in the conversation about divorce today is that point of oh, there's more to this than I actually thought because that's what Jesus was going for. I hope I can translate that to you. So Jesus right away goes back to the beginning, and this is, I'm glad to say, the way we generally do theology in our tradition as well. Right? When we're dealing with any topic, we say, well, what was it like at the beginning? How did God create things? Because that's the norm, that's the proper way, and then things got messed up, and they're being put back together. But that norm kind of tells us, okay, that's how things should be. Haven't you read, Jesus replies, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. That's Genesis one. And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. That's Genesis two, right? Jesus is saying, okay, you're asking me about divorce. Let's go back to the basics. What's the core? God created man and woman to live together in harmony in this way and so when they come together there's this amazing thing that happens, the two become one flesh. And I call that a sacramental mystery. Now before if you know your theology you say, wait a minute pastor, marriage isn't a sacrament, at least not in our tradition. I didn't say it's a sacrament, I'm saying it's sacramental. There are all kinds of things in this world that aren't sacraments, because in our tradition there's two, baptism and and communion. There's all kinds of things in this world that aren't sacraments, but they're sacramental because what they do is they, they take the mystery of God and they display it before us, right? So in baptism that's God washing away our sins is caught up in that very simple act of a little bit of water washing away. And God feeding us and nourishing us for the journey of following him comes up in a sacramental way in the sacrament of communion where we're fed with a little bit of bread and a little bit of juice right and that nourishes our entire soul this is sacramental because what god says is the two there are no longer two but one flesh right so my wife Ruthann is sitting right over there if you're online you can't see her sorry And um, we are apparently our one flesh, but I'm sitting over here and she's sitting over there. So apparently that doesn't mean that we're stuck together. We can't get apart, right? We all know this. But there is something sacramentally mysterious in this in that if our, our married life would separate, there would be a ripping apart that we would experience that would take some of me with her and some of her with me, right? You can't just say, we're gonna walk away from this. The two have become one, and there's this mysterious spiritual bond that takes place the minute you make those vows. I've done weddings for people who've, um, who've lived together already. I remember doing a wedding for somebody who, they lived together, they had a dog, they had a house. I don't think they had children yet, but when they came to me, they said, so it sounds like you're well down the road. Why are we doing this? And they had a great answer, they said, because the vows change everything. And I'm thinking, you didn't, you didn't figure that out in terms of the order you did things, but wow, is that ever exactly true? Right, when, when I prepare weddings for people, I, um, if I move on the camera and get my water, you can follow me, and I can keep talking? Yeah, okay, good. Um, what was I talking about? Thank you. When I do weddings for people, I always tell them, the wedding ceremony, one which is yours because you've hired me to do this, it's a family event, not a church event, Um, what makes it a wedding ceremony is the vows, right? All the other stuff we do is symbolizing or capturing those vows and so on, but focus on those vows because those vows change everything. Those vows are the sacramental mystery that take the two of you and make you into one flesh and therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus wants to say this amazing bond which God gives you, understand that, that he blesses you with is vitally important in terms of how you function as husband and wife, that you recognize that he's kind of made you into one. So then look at the wording of this. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away?" If you read that simplistically, I think, in as straightforward a fashion, fashion as possible, it almost sounds like Moses wants every man to give every wife a certificate of vo- divorce and send her away. Why is he commanding all men to send all wives away a certificate of, He's not saying that, you know that. And. This isn't what Moses commanded at all. Read Deuteronomy 24 verse one. This is quoted by Jesus. Interesting, you see I put quotes in quotes, quotes in air quotes, funny. Um, Jesus, according to our Bible anyways, our translation, he misquotes Deuteronomy 24 verse one. Now don't get on Jesus, He's, he's our guy. What he's doing is, what probably would have generally been done in that day, is is when you're teaching from a passage, there was the actual passage which they actually memorized. They had the whole Torah, the old first five books of the Bible memorized. And then there's the, the way they understood it and the teaching. So Jesus probably here, I don't know for sure, he's probably giving his understanding of how this is best kind of understood. Right? So this is Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. It's not exactly what the question asked. It's not exactly what's in there in, in our Bibles, but it says in Jesus' words, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. He says, that's the teaching. So Jesus believed in divorce and Moses believed in divorce, right? It's sort of like believing in rocks. They're there, right? There is divorce, it does happen, and this is how we manage it. And then Jesus, the authoritative rabbi, this is the third sermon in a row where you've seen that line on there because that's kind of how this works when Jesus does the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus replies, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. The law is there. Paul teaches this as well in Romans. The law is there because you get off track and you need something to push you back on track, right? If we didn't have broken hearts, if we didn't have corrupt minds, if we didn't have desires that get us off track, there would be no need for a law. That's probably the simplest way to put it. And so Jesus is simply saying to, to the people, Moses gave you the law about divorce because you were divorcing, you were ruining relationships, you were doing these kinds of things. And so he put this boundary around it that said, wait, there's gotta be, there's gotta be rules around this. There's gotta be lawyers involved when this happens. Again, he repeats, but it was not this way from the beginning. So again, notice what Jesus is doing. He's pointing out there is an ideal. That's the creation ideal. The two become one and let not anybody separate that. But there's the reality that Moses permitted this because he saw what was going on. It's coming up in a second, but anybody here who's live and can respond to this. Have you noticed noticed who Jesus is talking to the entire time here? Anyone? Men. men? Yeah. Thank you. Just talking to men. Gotta hang on to that because we just jump straight from this to our own realities, and we might miss something by doing so. Oh, it's the next slide. To whom is Jesus speaking? He's speaking to men. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for a sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So why is Jesus just speaking to men here? I'll answer that one. It's because only a man could divorce a woman. Right? So if you want to be a, um, a pure legalist and you think the Bible is a legal document, then women, there's actually no d- commands in the Bible whatsoever with respect to you divorcing because it wasn't actually a possibility then. There's no rules for you. I'm not saying go ahead and do whatever you want. I'm just saying there's no biblical rules telling a woman what to do in the context of divorce. We have to understand that in our day and age because whatever Jesus is saying here comes out of a radically different context than the one in which we live right now, okay? So as Jesus talks to men, what he's saying to them is, one, remember the creation norm again don't do this, but unless there's sexual immorality, what you're actually doing to the woman you're divorcing is you're making her the victim of adultery. Now, what we've done with that, and and maybe you understand this already, we've said that's the only legal reason you can do divorce is because there's sexual immorality. I don't think Jesus is actually saying that. All I hear him saying, if you look at the words, is this. If there's already been sexual immorality, you can't make her the victim of adultery because she's already done adultery. That's all I see him saying there. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So he's not saying there's only one reason for divorce and that's adultery. He's saying, no, no, there's the creation realm. There's no good reason for divorce. And yet it still happens, all right? And what he's saying then, is, okay, so Moses gave you this law. Jesus doesn't say there's no such law about divorce. He's not saying there's no such thing as divorce anymore and that you can't have divorce in this culture. What he's saying is, I've given you the creational norm. Hang on to that as hard as you possibly can. I think we all agree with that part. But men, because that's the only ones who could do the divorcing, when you do this, do not make a woman the victim of your whim. Because remember the question? Are we allowed to divorce a woman for any and all reasons? And that was one of those two teachers, idea that a man, if, he, if his wife burned dinner, holy, that was sexist, sorry, uh, <laughs> could divorce her because he didn't like what she did. A man could divorce a woman because he didn't like what she looked like anymore. And Jesus is going, you have got to be kidding. Do you know what happens to a woman when you divorce her? She no longer has livelihood. She no longer has standing. You just made her a victim of the entire culture, right? So he's not talking to our world where a man and a woman, if they get divorced, Our beautiful law says it gets equally divided and you are both taken care of if all goes well, right? Jesus was saying, you are making her a victim on all kinds of different levels, including adultery. Think about it, don't do it, live by the standard I've set before you. And I think this is important because if I understand correctly, what we've done historically in the church around divorce is we said Jesus is totally against it, and I'm going, yep, with you there. And so if you get divorced, we get to shun you and make you a victim of our lack of grace. Can I say it that way? So we are often doing, or have historically been doing, exactly what Jesus is teaching against, making somebody a victim when there's a divorce situation, and we're using his very words to do that. And I'm glad to say that as far as I can tell in this community and in our denomination, we've moved beyond that crazy idea that once somebody's divorced, they've now committed a sin that's no longer forgivable. They can't move on from it. They can't heal. They can't remarry. They can't have a sense of restitution, find a place of leadership. And we've come to understand that, of course, Jesus is against divorce. It's not God's plan. But like with every other commandment, we mess up pretty regularly. And so when it does happen, our task is not to shun these people and judge them and make them feel like they've been the worst people who've ever been just because their sin is public, but rather to say, how do we bring healing and reconciliation and restoration in their lives just like we would in the life of anybody else, right? It's almost cliche to say this now, but when it comes to greed, which by the way, ranks up with all the other sins in the Bible, Right? We turn a blind eye, and we actually sometimes celebrate people who are greedy, and we allow for it, and we certainly don't shun people in that category. But when it comes to these other things, we seem to miss that Jesus' core focus was love God with all you've got, and love your neighbor as yourself. And I don't know anybody who wants to be judged, and shunned, and pushed away, and mistreated because they're broken, so as yourself means when you see a broken person, treat them exactly the way you as a broken person, because you are one, want to be treated. What Jesus is teaching here is not, I set the bar so high that anyone who's divorced, they're out of the church and we've got to get rid of them. No, he's saying when broken stuff happens, be compassionate and walk with them. It's almost the opposite of what we've often done with this kind of teaching. And even when there is sexual immorality. It's not the law then that it's the end. It's probably a whole lot harder to heal, but there's always in Christ forgiveness. There's always in Christ reconciliation. There's always in Christ hope and transformation for a better tomorrow. And in what I would call our historic um, use of Jesus' teaching on divorce, we've done a horrible job of pushing people away in the name of Christ, we should have been gathering them in before i was even in seminary i worked with a guy and uh, he knew i was planning on going to seminary and that means it's open season ask theological questions and uh, he didn't ask me a whole lot of theological questions he just said eric i used to go to church and then my marriage fell apart and i couldn't go anymore that's about us as it gets, folks, that we would take Jesus' teaching as somehow a club that would push people away in a moment of great need instead of drawing them in and embracing them and walking with them on this journey forward. So, what do we do with this? One, let's keep agreeing that divorce is not God's intention. I think this one's easy. I am pretty sure I've never met anyone going into marriage thinking, kind of think I'm going to do this for a bit and then get divorced. Sounds like a plan. I've never met anybody who's contemplating divorce thinking, this is the best. I'm so glad I got to go through this, right? We intrinsically already know that divorce is not what's meant to be because it hurts like crazy. So, yes. Let's keep agreeing that divorce is not God's intention. That core teaching from the beginning is still there. Hang on to that. Second, recognize that divorce still happens and hearts still get hard, right? I've heard it way too many times in my adult life that when a marriage starts to fall apart, things we do are we pick who's wrong so we can judge them that's not quite what Jesus had in mind I'm quite sure because he says it explicitly right and then in the end both people because they each get judged by somebody distance themselves from the very community that's supposed to be helping them and we have this sort of sense that you shouldn't get divorced but there are circumstances where all we're doing when somebody gets officially divorced is recognizing that that thing was done a long time ago understand what i'm saying there right we're not making the divorce happen we're not honoring divorce we're not celebrating divorce when we recognize that it does happen we're recognizing that you know what we are still broken people and some of us broken people do things that are so terrible in a relationship that unfortunately as much as we try those people can't put it back on the rails again and divorce happens right keep that ideal but let's not be ridiculous and pretend that we're not gonna have to deal with this along the way. Sad, but the people in the divorce already know it's sad. They're experiencing it way more clearly than we are, so let's support them along the way. And then third, like Jesus, aim for the greatest justice and mercy possible. Remember simple but not easy? That's really simple to write on the screen. It's really simple to say, that's really hard to do because you know justice and mercy they they tend to be hard to bring right into the middle together right because divorce happens because we're broken people and so something broken must have happened that's a justice issue but it's always everybody involved and i not even talking both people in the couple but the community and all of us together we have a hand in this thing so to be merciful in that and to to do it's hard and so talk about and walk together through these things. This is about hanging on, right? This is about understanding that this is a challenging conversation because you know it sometimes happens, hopefully not here, when someone's marriage breaks up, they feel really lonely because no one knows what to say to them, so they stop talking to them. Not helpful, in case I needed to say that, right? Not helpful. Jesus had this amazing way of always entering into those circumstances. He intentionally hung around with the people who were hurting, I think, I suspect, based on his teaching, because love your neighbor as yourself means when somebody's hurting, you do what you would really love to have done for you. Somebody comes to you and says, talk to me about this. Let me walk through this with you. Um, I want to celebrate something our denomination has. This is the Acts of Sin in 1980. And you see how plain brown wrapper that is, how boring of a book that looks like? The reading is almost as boring, I'm just gonna say that out loud. hope I don't lose my ordination for that. Now we make them colorful and pretend they're really exciting, but they're not any more exciting when they're colorful. But the Acts of Synod is our collective denomination having a conversation about what do we really believe and how do we best do this, and in 1980, we talked about divorce and remarriage, and we reiterated, yes, pretty clear, the. God's intention is that marriages last, right? Of course it is. We all know that. Thank you. And then it said a whole bunch of really good practical things, one about encouraging each other to be open and real when things are challenging in your relationship, right, long before we're even talking about things like divorce. And if divorce happens, listen, understand, walk with, do whatever you can to bring reconciliation and hope and healing and to walk these people forward because that's what we're a community of. We're here to see lives transformed, all lives. I remember an elder said to me in my first congregation, this is Eric, strange enough that if you're part of the congregation and you go through something like a divorce, you're gonna feel in all kinds of ways that are not at all helpful. You're better off if we would kick you out and you would go somewhere else and a new community would embrace you. And I'm thinking, you know that's wrong, right? That just can't be the way we function. And so how we handle people who have brokenness in their lives that's all of our job and so all of us need to walk through this together and i want to at least celebrate that i think we are growing in our understanding of this i think i think part of what maybe i'm doing for you today is as i understand it this community this local congregation um does not shun divorced people you may feel that along the way it is difficult we're not great at it yet i'll say that much But I'm not sure all of us know theologically that that's okay. We have this gut instinct, of course we're supposed to love people and and this is a family member or friend who's gone through a tough time and and I wanna embrace them. And I wanna say that's actually what the Bible's teaching, right? We might have missed this one. We might have thought that this one actually gave us license to push and the reality is this is just one more way Jesus was saying don't you dare harm my children when they're already in pain. Of course there's an ideal. Understand the real and get in there and do whatever reconciliation work you can do to help out. I know it sounds like I'm done, but there's a couple more things. The part we ignore. This is the very same passage. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. Yeah, we're not touching that. We are next week. We're going to do singleness next week. And I'm not going to give it away. I'm just going to tease you by telling you. We're going to talk about that. Look at that line, though, right? Do does anyone type this on their wall and cross-stitch it? No? All right, no one's life first. <laughs> if you're married, it better not be. I'm just going to say that. All right, and then Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word for only those to whom it has been given for there are eunuchs. And he talks about the three kinds of eunuchs. How many of you have heard a regular session of sermons on eunuchs? No, eh? Two weeks from now, we're going to talk about the Ethiopian eunuch. These are the things we don't lean in. We are a marriage-focused culture that, in the process of being a marriage-focused culture, has also hurt people whose marriages have fallen apart, and we've also hurt people who aren't married. And I think we need to think about those things. That's what we're going to do in those relationship conversations the next couple of weeks. And then I just want to end with this. Remember the end that we're working towards. Jesus says, I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven who does these things. And he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I retranslated that for you last time, according to Eugene Peterson. I'm going to do it differently this time. Be perfect in this way. Be perfectly humble. Be perfectly loving. Be perfectly compassionate. Be perfectly aware that you aren't there yet and that your perfect humility is about sharing that you're still on this journey. In all those ways, you will continue to grow to be more and more like your Heavenly Father who is indeed perfect. Believe that as we follow Jesus, it can, in fact, reshape the way we have relationship with all the other people in our lives and then take a step today to make that a little bit more so. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, as we walk this journey of recognizing our own messy relationships that are also at the same time often our beautiful relationships, we pray that you would continue to walk with us, that your spirit would continue to inspire us, that we would grow more and more to be like you. And we pray, Lord, when we have done wrong, when we have sinned, when we have let our brokenness shine through, that you'd make us humbly aware, that you'd help us be open and honest, and that you'd help us walk with each other on that journey towards truth, healing, reconciliation, and deeper life. Give us deep wisdom in this, Jesus, because we know we need it. In your name we pray, amen.